I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I could talk in is starting to rhyme. I'm letting go lonely, letting go strife. I just can't get enough of this beautiful life. The Enneagram is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships. It creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram ninja. Hello. My man. Hey. We are joined by my favorite podcaster on earth, the Steve Morris. It's the year of guests. Welcome, Steve. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for the kind words. I mean, that's there's a lot. I don't know if you know this, but there are a lot of podcasters on Earth. So <laughs> being listed as the favorite is quite an honor. So thank you. Steve does a fantastic movie podcast called The Cinephiles um, with the John Roca, and they have dialogued through what is it around 150 films now, Steve? Something like that. I mean, we're we're over 200 episodes, but some of the a bunch of those are two parters or even three parters a few times. So I don't know, something like 150. What Steve does better than anyone else is elevate the beauties, stories, characters of beloved films, and they're just a treasure. And so if you get a chance, uh, Cinephiles with a hyphen in the middle, and I loved Pulp Fiction. I'm a huge Unforgiven fan. They did a great job on Lawrence of Arabia, and um, I could go on and on, and I'm not going to. But what, what else? Uh, when you introduce yourself, Steve, what do you say? Uh, I say that I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor. Which is mostly true. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're, and you're living in L.A. Uh, with your family. Uh, that's right. Yeah. I moved down to L.A. to go to film school in the mid-90s to get my master's degree and, strangely enough, never returned to San Francisco. So I'm, <laughs> I've become a Los Angeles transplant. What is the best thing about Los Angeles? Because I have family in L.A. and I can't get into the culture. Uh, L.A. is a tough town. It took me, I think... There's some cities you go to and right away you go, oh, I get it. You go to New Orleans, you get it right away. Yeah. You go to, I mean, not that there's not more to discover and you could spend years and years exploring that city, but you understand the culture. You go to San Francisco, the same thing. You go to Seattle, the same thing. You go to LA, it is a huge sprawling thing and it's very hard to get. It took me years to kind of figure it out. But now I really have come to love the city. And I think the biggest thing about it that's great is it's got this tremendous diversity. It is, it is the most diverse uh, city in the country. You know, it's got the largest Korean population outside of Seoul. You know, it's got, so there's so much different culture all bouncing up against each other. And that is really, really exciting. And what's unfortunate, I think, is that the things that people come to see when they come to LA, which is they go to Disneyland, they go to Universal, they go to the beach, they go to Hollywood, and they go to Beverly Hills, that's not what any of us go to. Right, you those know? aren't the interesting the, parts of LA. No, the interesting parts are harder to find, and it's going to that, you know, that taco truck in East LA. It's going to, you know, Watts Tower. It's going to, there's so much art and culture. And what's, of course, sad right now is so much of it is shut down. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all, we're all sitting home. But it's a really exciting, dynamic city. I mean, I'll always be a San Franciscan. That's where I'm from. That's it's hugely important to me. But I learned to really like L.A. too. Bang. 
Well, I've said this a few times on our podcast, but the, the last four years have been uh, personally kind of trying and difficult for me. And one of the things that has really got me through emotionally has actually been this this podcast. It is my escape when I'm trying to avoid, you know, politics and stuff. Uh, just all there, everything is crashing. And uh, this has just been I'm, I'm so grateful for your work. So and I'm glad you're here. Well, thank you. That me, it, it, it honestly means so much as a as a person who struggled for so long, for decades, really, to get anybody to see my work, and the fact that I have this thing where I, you know, exhaustedly post it at midnight on Thursday, and I wake up Friday morning and people listen to it. That means a ton. It means a ton to me. So thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, Steve, I'm gonna start by asking you an opening question. We're going to. Uh, we are in our deep dive on villains. Steve selected one Tyler Durden from our list to talk about. So we're going to do a deep dive into the Fight Club. And uh, Steve always starts his podcast with, how did you come to the film? So I want to do a two-parter. How did you come to the movie Fight Club? And why is Tyler Durden a character that stands out to you most on this list? Well, I came to, I think I saw it opening night. I saw it in the Cinerama Dome, which is a storied big movie theater in Hollywood. And it's possible because I was, I, I, you know what, I, I'll tell you something I did. My research for this was I re-listened to my podcast on Fight Club because I went, <laughs> I know that I had a whole bunch of thoughts about this movie, but I kind of forgot what all of them were. So I just got to re-listen to this guy from a few years ago to say what I actually think. And one of the things I learned from listening to my own podcast was that Ed Norton, I think I saw it uh, opening night at the Cinerama Dome, and that Ed Norton and a couple other people who worked on the movie snuck into the back of the Cinerama Dome on opening night. So it's perfectly possible that he was in the movie theater behind me when I was watching it. So that's how I came to it. The movie absolutely blew me away. Um, as far as why Tyler Durden, I mean, you've put out a list of great villains, um, and, the th and I pick the one that's most complicated hmm. because Tyler Durden's not just one person. He's at least two people, maybe three. And so that makes his motivations and his, uh, and because the movie has an unreliable narrator, we're not sure at all what really happened in yeah. this film, you know, and that's certainly fun stuff to dig into. Talk about unreliable narrators for a moment, because I imagine that's something that we can come back to throughout. When you use that term, what comes to, what comes to your head? Well, it's just that, you know, I mean, basically all of us are unreliable narrators about our own life. I mean, we all use our perspective to explain away what it actually is that we are and what we're doing. So when I tell you a story about my life, well, I'm manipulating you either consciously or unconsciously to believe what I want you to believe about me. Yeah. This guy, not only is he telling us a story where he's trying to represent himself, but he doesn't actually know what's going on. So he is as unreliable as possible. It's not just that he's kind of trying to tell his truth, but he's discovering his truth as he goes along. And there isn't, as I said, there isn't any way to know exactly what really happened in this film. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, Tom Wright, who does New Testament says, 30% of the things that I'm telling you are probably wrong. The unfortunate thing is I don't know what those 30% are. And I love the idea of humility. <laughs> coming to how you're talking about this is how I see the world but I'm I could be off but he is clearly off and it's shown that he's off yeah, yeah. I've, I have a corollary to that I don't know if you've ever heard the um 
Linus Pauling, the Nobel Prize winning uh, chemist, what his golden rule is, do unto others 20% better than they, you than you would have them do unto you to compensate for subjective error. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Well, Tyler Durden, I don't know if you would define Tyler Durden as a villain. We may need to get into that. But since we're in a series on villains, how would you define a villain in film? Well, I would say the general explanation that is that the villain is the bad guy. And I would say there's some difference between an antagonist and a villain. Because you can have someone that you're in conflict with who's not necessarily a bad guy. They could be, can we have two good guys in conflict? And that, so that would be an antagonist who's not a villain. So I would say an, a villain is an antagonist with evil intent. Mm. And where this becomes gray is that you can have someone, most people don't, aren't choosing to be bad. Most people are choosing to do things that are motivatable out of their character, not that they're bad. Frequently, people that do the worst things in history are people that believed that they were doing good. In fact, that's what makes you know, those people so dangerous, is that their strong belief that what they're doing is good. Tyler Durden believes what he is doing is good, or at least I think we can argue that he believes that. Mm-hmm. And so, and yet, the, the distance between what someone believes about themselves and what the actual reality of their actions are can certainly make him qualify as a villain. Well, this is just good. This is part of good storytelling, like having, having a villain that you can understand why they're doing the things that they're doing is a much more compelling character. Like it, it's harder to watch villains that are just plain evil because you can't relate to them at all. But when you can see what why they're doing what they're doing like then it draws you into the story a little bit more makes it more it's it's certainly what draws me i I, personally my taste is i don't like bad guys Hmm. like i like and and in all of my writing and it's funny i had an epiphany of my own work um a few years ago and my work's pretty weird because i've done great white shark documentaries and you know features and other stuff is that I'm really interested in looking behind the other side and going, having something that looks villainous, like a great white shark when you start. And by the end, you go, oh, I understand this. This makes more sense. And so that's what really interests me. I'm not really that interesting, interested in, you know, black hat bad guys. Mm-hmm. You know, although there are some great ones in film history, certainly. Let's talk about Tyler Durden for a second. Just as quick setup. A second? Um, I thought we were going to talk for yeah. Tyler Durden for like a couple of hours. <laughs> Unfortunately, t- well, Tyler Durden is and is not introduced up front here. So we're going to do a lot of groundwork here. Um, but Tyler Durden was listed as Empire Magazine's number one character of all time. On our list, Salieri was the villain I related to most. This is the character I re- relate to least. Um, do either of you have any like pull, like this is someone who you sympathize with that you, you could see yourself going down this path? Except for the psychotic break. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like I, I, I can't foresee a psychotic break in my, at any point in my future, but, um, no, you, the, you actually already had one. You just don't know. <laughs> there we go. There it is. <laughs> uh, I, I am very compelled by this character and I'll say now that I'm, I'm going to differentiate between Edward Norton and Brad Pitt by calling Edward Norton characters, Jack. That's a like, cause a, you read the book. I I've read some of the book. I haven't read all of the book, um, but he, he uses those 
when Edward Norton finds the the poems in the um, well, they're in yeah. The this house. is this is Jack's medulla oblongata. Right. This is Jack's pancreas or whatever. So Chuck Palahniuk used uh, used this as a narrative device. Like he would use this. Uh, I am Jack's smirking revenge. He would use it throughout the book to to give you a sense of what the narrator was thinking. Um, so my friends and I, we just started calling Edward Norton's character Jack because he goes unnamed in the script and whatnot. So uh, when I'm saying Jack, I'm talking about Edward Norton. Tyler, I'm talking about uh, Brad Pitt. But uh, the way that Edward Norton is, um, Jack is essentially looking for a reason to give a crap about his life. And Tyler Durden creates that for him like it, it gives him purpose it gives him a sense of of doing something that's that's more significant than flipping through an ikea catalog and and that i i i think that's part of the pull of this film for a lot of people is and yep. and i totally get that i'm on board with needing purpose <laughs> Well, I, I think what's so, that's what's so difficult about this conversation is, well, who are we talking about? Because yeah. this is the same person. Right. You know, they share the same body. They look the same. It might very well be that Jack's name is Tyler Durden. Right. We don't know, you know. And, and, and so when you ask the question of do I relate to this person, do I relate to perfect ab, perfect dress, <laughs> super charismatic Brad Pitt? No. Do I find that character seductive? 100 percent and so but do i relate to lonely sad seeking meaning in his life confused about his place in the world ed norton oh yeah and it's because of my relationship to ed norton and how i feel connected to him even though i'm not nearly as sad a person as that guy is but i but i understand it that makes it so easy to be seduced by Brad Pitt, setting us up to relate to the narrator character and his level of desperation is part of what makes Brad Pitt so attractive when we meet him. Right. What we're going to do with Tyler Durden is type Tyler Durden as a six. Um, TJ, you want to give us the, the skinny on, on sixes? Yeah. Uh, so a real quick sixes are in the center of the head triad, the thinking triad. Being in that center, they take in the whole world. They take in everything around them through the headspace, through logic and reason and, and, and rational thought. And they unfortunately don't engage the world from that place. So they get stuck in thinking about all the possibilities. So they are, it's said that fear is the thing that they struggle with. I like to think that doubt is the thing that they struggle with mo the most. Uh, they don't trust themselves and they don't trust that everything else is going to go well. So they live from that place of planning for failure. They, they look at all of the things and think about what might go wrong here. Because they don't trust themselves, they are continually looking for an authority figure, a, a, a hierarchy, a, a system of rules or, or sort of governance that tells them where the boundaries are so that they know how to be safe biggest concern is how how can I be safe and how can I protect the people around me sixers are most likely to be thinking about the greater good and from that place it, it's all about just trying to figure out like what are the rules in order to have a safe life talk about why we might think that Tyler Durden and the narrator are a six so I think that um 
I think it's it's harder to point to Tyler's behavior as six, but I think it's fairly easy to point to who I call Jack, the narrator. I think it's easy to point to him as a six because so much of what he does is about just following the rules that society has set out for him, like his, his uh, needing to have the right collection of apartment furnishings in order to make sure that this is what defines him. And it's all about what society says about what is supposed to be in his apartment. We were, we were listening to, um, I watched this with my wife, uh, who is a six in preparation for this. And when we got to the point where Tyler or where Jack is saying that he needed to know exactly which table settings were going to define him as a person, like my wife and I have had that conversation before about like making mm. sure that we pick the exact right thing based on society standards in order to decide who I am. And it's, it's because he it fundamentally does not trust himself. So, so now you've opened up a huge amount of questions because the, we, we, I think we need to continually, and this is what's so hard and exciting about Fight Club, is we got to continually define your terms. Because when you, it's, you sent me the, you know, a little bit about what we're going to do today, and you sent me the thing that it w- that he was a six, and I kind of read through, and I don't really understand this stuff. I'm really a beginner in all of it, but I went, ah, that doesn't sound like Tyler Durden to me. And now, and then as you defined it again, I said, wait, are we talking about Tyler Durden? Or are we talking about the narrator? And what you did was you just defined. The narrator is a six. So the narrator goes out, and what, and what I, you said something as you were speaking about they're seeking an authority figure, right? Mm-hmm. They're seeking some truth to tell them what to do. Yeah. Well, that truth is Tyler Durden. Yes. So Tyler. So what number is Tyler Durden? So this is this is one of the funny things about sixes. So um, sixes more than any other type, they have this spectrum, uh, and it's often taught as two poles, but but we think it's more of a spectrum that, that the sixes are continually moving across, and it's between phobic and counterphobic. Phobic sixes look more fearful. Counterphobic sixes look more like uh, trying to show you that they're not afraid. So I'm going to show you how not afraid I am by being reckless mm-hmm. in my posture. So, Do you think Tyler Durden is pretending to be not afraid or is not afraid? I think that Tyler is secure enough that he is pushing against all of the things that are trying to get him to be afraid. So here, here's how I think about this guy. There is a person who was born. I don't know if his name was Tyler Durden. I don't know if his name was Jack. I don't know what his name is. And that person had a father because father figures are extremely important to Tyler, to to both characters. Mm -hmm. In fact, they describe their father who wasn't there. And I think they say something about like he had a franchise as a family, which means that he had like more than one family and more than one kids. So this character lacks a father figure. And then at a certain point through some desperation, this character has a psychotic break and creates the manifestation of the person that they need. Mm -hmm. And the question is that if, the narrator was pretending to be Tyler Durden. There's no question in my mind that he is pretending not to be afraid. But if Tyler Durden is the manifestation of the desire of the narrator and who he wishes to be, I don't think Tyler Durden's pretending not to be afraid. I think he's not afraid. I think he is a pretty fearless guy. But this is when we get into trouble. It's like, well, are we talking about the same person? In which case, of course he's afraid because we know at his core he's the narrator. 
but if we analyze them as different people, then I go, Tyler Durden's not afraid. And I, I agree. I think they are two manifestations of the same person and that Tyler is the version of Jack that lives without fear. And, and I think like reconciling those two halves is, I, I think it is part of the crux of the whole movie. For our discussion, I think it's also a big part of what sixes need to come to terms with in order to become healthier people. Place that my mind goes, um, maybe this is a third option, but if you're like me and you talk to yourself, occasionally that self has a personality, as it were. Um, I'm very, I find myself being self-critical and sometimes my self-criticism can, can be overwhelming and it's almost as though it were a voice. What it seems to me with this character is going on is there is that going on. There's a relationship with his inner life that he is almost, dia- well, he is, he's dialoguing with his inner life and his inner life is responding in a very abusive way. And it's, it seems to me that that processing that is going on in the inner life of this character in terms of his existential crisis, he's looking, he's trying to figure out what the meaning of life is, who he is, what it means to be a man, uh, what to do with his fears. All these things are being processed with his inner life. So in my mind, the primary is the narrator. The Tyler Durden is exactly what he tells us he is in uh, in one of the, the latter scenes where he says, All the ways you wish you could be, that's me. I look like you want to look, I fuck like you want to fuck, I am smart, capable, and most importantly, I'm free in all the ways that you are not. There is something about sixes that want to attach to security. And one of the things that it seems to me this t- narrator does is they he sees nothing in the world worth attaching to uh, except for the the voice in his heart that is is that um, deeply skeptical voice that wants to deconstruct everything and it becomes a per- personification of you know I don't know if that's like that's a lot of ideas going on so maybe we can play them out as we walk through the movie. Well, um, I, have, I have one more thing I want to throw out. Yeah, um, please, because you know I'm never uh, a man of few words. Um, the one more thing I want to throw out is that you, you brought up TJ Fear, which I think is such a key element of the narrator character. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a relationship to morality and is that there are mm-hmm. certain constructs of morality which are um, – we can – let's say that there let's, – let's postulate that there are certain constructs of morality that are universal, cross-cultural. Right. They're just this is what is good. And there are other constructs of society and, and what we would call morality, which are really constructs of the society. Mm-hmm. They come from the culture that we exist within. And uh, the narrator's trying to figure this all out. And he's trying to behave within the constructs of what the society wants to be. Yep. Tyler Durden, in addition to being fearless, he is deconstructing that. He's saying, well, let's look at what this really is. And most of it is BS, is mm-hmm. the, in Tyler Durden's mind. Mm-hmm. And so one of the other differences, and it might be that you know Tyler Durden's a sociopath, is that because he doesn't care about traditional morality, he can step outside of the rules of society and pull the narrator with him. And that's part of what makes him so seductive because the holes that he sees in society, he's totally right about so much of it. Mm. And then there's a certain point where he gets to certain conclusions where that's where we might become villainous. 
CJ, talk about that in sixes, because you are bringing up exactly what overlaps with with a lot of Enneagram study. So TJ, sixes and in, in questioning authority. So being that sixes live in that place of doubt and they're, they're continually looking for, for the rules, for the boundaries that keep them safe, they're also constantly aware of authority and, and what kinds of authority is good and bad. Like they're, they're, they're looking for authority to, to tell them how to live, but they're also questioning authority continuously like they they don't trust authority for its own sake the you you have to earn trust from a six and so so that that idea of, of pushing against these rules like do these rules make sense are these the best way to live or are they just the rules that we live under this is something that that sixes are are, are going to be looking for and 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 looking at whether or not the authority figure uh, or system or whatever is actually worth putting our trust into. They will be pushing back against that. And this is a huge part of who Tyler Durden is. It seems to me one of the things that characterizes six is unproductive thinking as well as I want to attach to things that make me feel secure. And, and it seems to me a primary with this narrator is that there is nothing that's worthy of his trust. And he's questioning everything in a kind of way that it's like, go, 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 go. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. But it's when the voice of Tyler arises that he is almost putting that questioning of all authority on steroids that he actually trusts in the doubt. And it's as though the doubt is, is even weaponized. The deconstruction goes to the highest level it can. There's nothing here worth trusting in. And that seems to me to be his trajectory. And we'll talk, we'll talk quite a bit about that, but we also, we, we haven't really talked about um, like the, the sort of the thrust of this whole series is about types in their security point. Uh, and, and when they go to their security point in unhealthy ways, that's where villainy comes out. So sixes, when they are secure, when they, when they feel like they, they know what's going on and they, they feel comfortable with their surroundings, with what's expected of them. Uh, they, they can move to nine and, and pick up some of the behavior at nine. And uh, I, this means that like for, for healthy things, it's like they, they can take a chill pill. They can relax a little bit more. They can stop worrying about planning for all of the different things. Like they go to nine, they get this like real groovy, like let's chill out kind of attitude. But in unhealthy ways, I think it, it, basically is exactly what Tyler Durden is. Which is? He does not care about how anything affects him and yeah. how his behavior affects other people. And he's trying to get everyone else to stop caring too. It's a sociopathic passivity towards other other human beings. Right. Because things things are going to work or they aren't. And, and freaking out about whether you're safe or whether you have the right duvet or like all of these things that everyone worries about it just takes away from your life he has power and sometimes you just want to destroy something that's beautiful yeah the i don't care at all passivity that seemed to me to be like kind of one of the faces of the high villainy for this for this character um edge tj this is a rated r film Yep. You want to give the public a service announcement for our, our dear listeners? There's a reasonable chance that you're going to hear some swears. 
We have also blown right past the spoiler warning on our conversation, huh? Oh, yeah, that's true. Spoiler alert. Oops. Um, I guess if you haven't seen it by now, I mean, you've had 20 years. Last thing, um, on Steve's podcast, he is presently raising... For, why, why don't you pitch this? What are you doing, Steve, with uh, raising funds for childhood cancer? So we were all so shocked by the untimely death of Chadwick Boseman. And normally on the cinephiles, we have a 10-year rule, which means we only talk about movies that are at least 10 years old. And that was just, we just wanted to talk about movies that had really stood the test of time. And when Chadwick Boseman died, there was a lot of people that said, you guys got to do Black Panther. And we went immediately, John and I, my partner on the show went, we do have to do Black Panther. And then we decided we wanted to do a little bit more. And because uh, Chadwick died of cancer and before his death, he's working with kids with cancer, not telling anyone that he had stage four colon cancer. And those tireless efforts made us want to do something to support that, to honor that. And so we are working with the National Children's Cancer Society, which is this tremendous organization that offers support to families with kids with cancer to deal with all of the the pressure that goes onto their life, the travel expenses, the psychological trauma, they give scholarships, they help with caregivers. And what they're, we're doing is we're raising no money for them. You can go to the nccs.org slash Black Panther. That's T-H-E, nccs.org slash Black Panther. And if we reach $3,000, which we're really close to, we're going to get a matching grant to double every dollar that comes in, all the way up to ten grand. So if we can raise... Uh, $10,000 through the cinephiles and through the hope of your podcast, then we could actually raise $20,000 to help families with kids and cancer. So that's the nccs.org slash Black Panther. You can donate right now. And we'll also put that link in the show notes. So do find it there as well. And we will have it on our website. Y'all want to get into this? Let's do it. I'm ready. So cue the Dust Brothers music. There's an opening montage that lands on the narrator with a gun in his mouth, and the narrator's voice said, People are always asking me if I know Tyler Durden. And then Tyler from his side says, Three minutes. This is it. Ground zero. Would you like to say a few words to mark the occasion? <laughs> with a gun barrel between your teeth, you speak only in vowels. I can't think of anything. I have heard, Steve, that in film this is known as a prolapsis. Um, that is, there is a flash forward to the last scene. Do you got thoughts on these? Do you got any famous examples? Anything we're saying here? I mean, the most famous example is uh, Sunset Boulevard, I think. But I don't know that this is a flash forward. I think the movie could be a flashback. Ooh. I mean, he talks in the past tense throughout the whole movie. And he says, you know, Marla ruined everything and this happened. And that's when I first met Tyler Durden. He's describing something that's happening in the past. And he's even describing it with the knowledge, I think, that he and, and this is one of the weird things. So I'll just say when you write voiceover narration and there's a lot of bad stuff out in the world and you frequently, particularly with my students, it's a. I can't figure out how to get this information out. And so I'm just going to have voiceover tell the audience. I was really mad at this person because of this thing that happened and now the audience knows. That's lame voiceover. Good voiceover interacts in a creative and dramatic way with what you're seeing in the film. And Fight Club is among the top three or four examples of great voiceover. Mm -hmm. But one of the things you have to decide when you write voiceover is what is the perspective of the person that is talking? Who are they talking to? 
For instance, we just did Million Dollar Baby, which has Morgan Freeman, who's among the great voiceover people ever in the history of film, and he's talking, and only at the end of the film, this is a spoiler alert too, do you discover that in fact he's writing a letter to Clint Eastwood's daughter. And then, and so, so what that voiceover is, is it's still a character who has a motivation. So the narrator is telling us a story, and he's telling us a story about his life in the past, I think. The other thing about it is that you can totally cheat in order to make a good moment. If the good moment violates the rules you set up with for your voiceover, you do it. And this movie, it's, you know, the more you watch it, the more you go like, wait, what exactly happened? Who knew what they knew and when did they know it? And it's very hard to figure out. Hmm. A lot of sort of traditional storytelling rules don't really apply to this movie. Nope. Very interesting. The thing that strikes me here is there is a common tradition in literature of putting the theme of your piece as the first sentence or the first paragraph of your work. And since we will come to find out that the narrator is Tyler Durden, when he says people are always asking me if I know Tyler Durden, what he's really saying is people are always asking me, do you know who you are? And the narrator has personified his fears, his fuel, his self-sabotage in, in what I think is this mental projection then. Um, and the do you know who you are and placing a gun in his own mouth, what we have here is it, it seems to me that we're starting out with a suicidal picture. It's not just suicide. It's the terrorist who has set all these bombs up and wants to kill himself in the process. But the question there is who are you? Go ahead. Well, it's also, it's also important to point out that he says, people are always asking me if I know Tyler Durden. Not once in the film does anyone ever ask him if he knows yep. Tyler yeah. Durden. And the reason that nobody asks him this question is that he is Tyler Durden. So why does he phrase it in that way? Is Because that- he's crazy. <laughs> also, 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 because it's a, also because it's a movie. And, and, and that line does exactly what they wanted it to do, which is have us speculate about this who are you issue and all that stuff. And it, and it really does because the question of who is Tyler Durden, who is he in relationship to Tyler Durden, you're absolutely right. This is the movie. This is the theme of the film. Well, it's also the case that like once, jumping forward a little bit, once Project Mayhem sort of goes on, gets legs and really gets going, like they, they make a big thing about the fact that nobody has names in Project Mayhem. And the first rule of Project Mayhem is you don't talk about Project Mayhem. And, and all of these questions, the the sort of army that Tyler is setting up, I, I think that he's trying to, to create something where nobody has an identity. And so the idea of, especially because like, like who knows what other people this, this narrator character has sort of pretended to be out in the world. I, I imagine him going to different fight club satellites and, and them literally not knowing that he is Tyler. He doesn't know it himself, but, but going into these spaces where like, I remember there's a part where he walks in on some of them talking about the founder of fight club and these rumors that are going on about him. And they're saying it in front of the founder of fight club. Right. And, and so I think he's intentionally created a system where he can actually wander through anonymous. So it might be the case that outside of what we see in the film, that in the fight club setting, people are asking people, do you know Tyler Durden? Because he's anonymous at this point. So 
uh, I studied this film a whole bunch a couple of years ago when we did the podcast. And I got to say, TJ, you just maybe had a full epiphany about the film. <laughs> and here's what you mean, because what I never connected was his having no name, because our main character is nameless. Right. Tyler Durden, and the people are always asking me, do I know Tyler Durden? Who is Tyler Durden? I never connected that to Project Mayhem, and we don't have names in Project Mayhem. Mm -hmm. And I never connected that to the other element, which is that they go to a convenience store, and they point a gun at a guy, and they the basic question, what is the question they're asking him? Yep. Who do you want to be? Yep. And then what do they do with that person and a whole bunch of other people? They steal their identification. They Ooh. steal, literally steal their identity. <laughs> they take away their identity from these people. So we have this guy with no name who's trying to figure out who the one person who has a name, Tyler Durden, who is forcing people to have no names, who is also stealing the names of other people. That I never thought of until you just said that, mm. TJ. I'll double down on that. The, the names run throughout this. Name tags, the IDs. Sure, Cornelius and Rupert and... One of the high points for me is... His name is Robert Paulson. 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 And they chant it and chant it. There is something about names that are our identity. He is asking, again, the question of who are you? The what is your name comes up a handful of times for the narrator. And it's about finding yourself and your identity. And with a gun in his mouth, Durden says, would you like to say anything? And he says, I can't think of anything because he's got nothing to say about his one and only life. Um, there's a famous Camus quote that goes something like, there's only one really serious philosophical problem, and that's why not commit suicide. And the reason is, if you that's have That's why Camus has never been my guy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to spin it. Let me spin him well for you. It, the reason he asked the question is, if you can give an answer to the question, why not commit suicide, then you have established what you think the meaning of life is. Long story short, and for all of us, two foundational questions are right here at the beginning of this movie is who are you? What's the meaning of life? It seems to me that this is an exploration for somebody who is a six, who is traditionally very doubtful about what they should attach to and where they should find security. And, and eventually they're going to need to find that they have an identity that's robust that they can live out of. Narrator says, For a second, I totally forget about Tyler's whole controlled demolition thing, and I wonder how clean that gun is. It's getting exciting now. That old saying, how you always hurt the one you love? Well, it works both ways. Since Tyler Durden is the narrator, isn't this about him hurting himself? Isn't it the case that we will see throughout this film that this narrator has a real problem with self-destruction? Um, and self-sabotage. Yes. That seems to be pictured in beautiful ways in terms of the world out there, and it's showcasing what's going on in his inner life. Um, how many of us maybe look all put together out there and yet do great damage to our hearts, to our minds, to self-sabotaging relationships that we have? TJ, do you have a, a, the word on uh, sixes and self-sabotage? Well, sixes are less likely to sort of intentionally self-sabotage. Their, their self-sabotage comes from, A, they do not trust themselves at all. So they don't engage 
life in ways that give them meaning that, that give them purpose. Like they, they're, they're too afraid to, to do the things that they want to do. And so they, they, because of that, they're continually pulling themselves back from doing things that will be worthwhile. Um, they're, they're self-sabotaging by, by being afraid to, to risk anything. Do you see that in this character? Cause that seems like that's not this character. I see it in the narrator. Yeah. That's, and that's what I mean. Where do you see it in the narrator, narrator Steve? Oh, it's everything you said. Afraid to risk. Yeah, I'll, 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 everything TJ just said, I see. I, I, my big question, I think, is, uh, TJ, if, if this was a movie in which Tyler Durden was his own person, there was no split personality thing, you just met this character in a movie, would he be a six? I would have a real hard time pinning six on him as, as just the individual. Uh, the reason that I am so comfortable with him with saying that Tyler is a six is because I think that Tyler is the manifestation, manifestation. Yeah. from from Jack of of who he wishes he could be. So I I hope that we we dissect this a little bit more as the film goes on. But the so we talked about sixes have such a hard time trusting themselves and they're looking for an authority figure. And so, so Jack, Edward Norton's character, the narrator, not being able to trust himself and not really finding any sort of safety within, in, within his, his confines, like his weird job and his, his boring apartment, like he doesn't really feel secure there. And then he has a psychotic break and he actually creates the authority that he's looking for which interestingly enough is inside of himself. And this is the place where sixes need to come anyway. Sixes need to learn to trust themselves. And that's Jack's whole journey is, is figuring out that, that like integrating Tyler and, and learning to trust his own voice because, because Tyler is, except for the, the, the chaotic and and really destructive parts of Tyler there like there's there's a an authority there that Jack needs and it's it's really it's himself and that's the thing that he needs to trust so i see Tyler as the version of Jack that he wishes he could be but that's my question is what number is that version i think it's still a 6 just a healthy 6 or a more integrated 6 you would talk. You would call Tyler Durden, uh, Brad Pitt's character, a healthy version of a six. Once I, I think once Jack and Tyler integrate into one singular person, is that what happens at the end? I think so. I, I don't, we don't know. I, I think that is. A, I think that is a perfectly good explanation, but I don't know. It's the only one. Right. Agreed. Yeah, this is my interpretation of yeah how things go. So we're about, what, 45 seconds into the movie? Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're rolling. This is how my notes went. Is I couldn't get out of this intro. This dark scene transitions with the narrator saying, And suddenly I realized that all of this, the gun, the bombs, the revolution, has got something to do with a girl named Marla Singer. I've watched this movie a handful of times. I have no idea why this has anything to do with a girl. Do you have thoughts on that, Steve? I think... So, again, sometimes things are just because they're a good line, and I think that's a good line. Ah. Um, but I also think that she is central in a, in a certain kind of way. 
So this is a movie about masculinity and maybe even a movie about what we might today call toxic masculinity and the relationship between what is a man and Fight Club is a manifestation of an interpretation of masculinity that involves violence. Men are primal creatures who must be violent and to withhold violence from men means they're not expressing their true nature and that's bad. And that leads to the sort of, the sort of, I'll say, castrated version of Ed Norton, a non-manly man trying to conform to a society that's taken away his masculinity. Well, the other side of masculinity, we could say in terms of this movie, as opposed to violence, is sex. You know, is that, is, and there is a clear male-female thing set up. We talk a lot about the missing father, but there's also the missing mother. And Marla, who is his spirit animal, who it exists in his place of comfort, is the mother or the female half of himself that he's needing to complete himself. And she is the person that most comes between himself and the other part of his personality. As his personalities separate, it's, because, it's when Marla comes into the relationship. And what's the next thing that happens as they separate? Project Mayhem. So the relationship between violence and sex, male and female, I do think is central to this movie. But I also think it's a good line and saying she ruined everything. And the, the, you know that character, it works really, really well. Last scene with them holding hands does have a connectedness image to it on that front where somehow there has been, if we want to talk about integration, uh, images of integration, that might be what's going on there. I'm real curious to, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dialogue about this throughout because in my, well, let's cut to the next scene. The next scene is, uh, is about masculinity. Of course, the inner trials that the narrator is having have to do with his understanding of what it means to be a man. And the first scene has the narrator saying, Bob, Bob had bitch tits. And there's a sign that is reading remaining men together. And Bob is a former bodybuilder. He's a successful entrepreneur and he has lost his family and is crying and he's hugging the narrator saying, we're still men. Yes, we're men. Men is what we are. The question of what does it mean to be a man, then, as you were saying, colors everything in this movie. What does that mean? Uh, what does it mean to be a man? Are you, are you asking me what I think it means to be a man? I'm asking you both what does it mean to be a man, and perhaps to a second a follow-up is what is, the, what is the movie trying to communicate about what does it mean to be a man? Well, I think you got to add a third. Because you yeah. have to have what is Tyler Durden trying to communicate about what is being a man versus what is the movie trying to communicate. And I think one of the interesting things about this film is there were a whole bunch of people that watched it. And because Brad Pitt is so seductive, they went, Tyler Durden is right. We should yep. be these violent. They actually had fight clubs that popped up around the country because people went like, yeah, this is what we need. I don't think that's what the movie is saying. I think the movie wants you to be seduced by this and then also be critical of it because of where it goes, which is to domestic terrorism. As far as what I think it means to be a man, I think it means nothing. I, 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 what I don't like is, is, I don't like things that are what I would call prostrictive or restrictive. You know, prostrictive is this is what you're supposed to be. Restrictive is this is what you shouldn't be. 
So if we take a whole bunch of men and we take a whole bunch of women, are there certain traits on average that we're more likely to see with the men and more likely to see with the women, more violent play with the men, more comforting with the women? Yeah, we would probably see those traits. But what happens that I think is a mistake is people look at what is the general thing that we see of men and then we go to boys and say, that's what you're supposed to be like. Instead of saying, well, you're going to be on a range because within that group, which is slightly more violent or slightly more aggressive with the men, there are people that are extremely aggressive and violent and there are people that are completely peaceful. There are people very in touch with their emotions. There are people who never show their emotions. And if you look over at that group of women, they have the same range of things. And so we, I think we, where we get into trouble is, say, is by saying this is what you should be. That's a problem. And so if, you know, it's like I have a love of martial arts. I've done martial arts since I was 18 years old. I love sparring. I, I, I mean, not so much anymore because I'm an old guy, but I love roughhousing. I love all that stuff. I used to have pillow fights with friends in high school that were the most athletic, brutal pillow fights you could possibly imagine because <laughs> that was fun to me. I'm also just about as close to a pacifist as you could get, you know. So I am not a violent person at all. But I have loved playing with violence for 30 years. You got thoughts on that, Teach? Uh, I agree completely. As someone on the other end of that spectrum, I'm a fairly quote-unquote feminine man, uh, and I've spent a good part of my life learning how to define masculinity on my own terms. And I think that, that when we dictate how these two different groups are supposed to look and leave no room for like people to just be people then like we're we're only asking for trouble and and ideas like toxic masculinity come from that place and and yeah i mean i, I think think like you know you say you're trying to define masculinity for yourself and it's like i think give it up define tj for yourself right yep you know like There's just not a lot there. Like, it's hard enough to be who we want to be, to be the best versions of ourselves without having to to conform to some societal thing that's laid down on us. That being said, like, I live in a, you know, I'm in California. It's a pretty liberal place. My kid goes to a progressive school. He's nine years old. He, too, is very physical. And he likes physical play. Mm -hmm. My That school has a complete no tolerance on violence. And so what would happen is like he and another boy who are very boyish and they start kind of roughhousing and not only will the school pull them apart, but they will um, make them apologize to each other and heal their situation because violence is never acceptable. And to me, that's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They were playing just like puppies play. Right. There wasn't. So that's another sense in that the world is trying to have people conform to a certain ideal. And that's where I have problems. You know, it's like, no, we're all really different. And so I always go like, look, oh, you like music? That's awesome. Go like music. You like martial arts? That's awesome. Go like martial arts. You're into science? Fantastic. Go do that. Don't try to force somebody to like a thing they don't like. Right. Or vice versa. Even in that that kids roughhousing thing, like like the idea of saying that that violence is never the answer well it's not it i agree that it's never the answer to solve problems but they weren't trying to solve problems they were having fun (laughs) like that's a different thing and when we get prescriptive about it we create problems well and sometimes violence is the answer 
I mean, it, you know, I don't, you know, it's like the, there are situations where violence is the answer. They're, they're, in my mind, extremely rare, and we think it's the answer far more often than it is. Mm. But if there is a dude and he's, you know, swinging a, you know, a baseball bat at my wife, well, violence is the answer here. Sure. There's, the, you know, at that point, I can't talk that guy out of anything. Now, because of where my philosophy is, I would still try to disarm him with as minimal level of violence as possible if I could. Mm -hmm. But if I couldn't, I'd beat the crap out of that guy. Right. I also, I feel the pull of the question, what does it mean to be a man? And I also believe it's irrelevant. The power of the question, I think, is real interesting. That there are there are many who are captivated by this question. I think the I would guess the filmmaker is is captivated by it. I think the narrator is captivated by it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to land where you all do, and you know TJ will know this. My my oldest is a non-binary and prefers they them pronouns, and so there's a a uh, conversation in our home consistently about the spectrum and what seems to me to be taking place in the narrator is have you ever been consumed by an irrelevant question? And I think he has an irrelevant question in his mind and heart, which is what does it mean to be a man or am I a man? Am I being enough of a man? That's where I think he wants to find his identity and it's why he's so easily manipulated and why so many of the characters um, that join Fight Club are easily manipulated in the end. I think all of us, uh, let me put this a different way. A lot of people are not drawn to complexity. They're drawn to simplicity. And they're looking Mm. for some secret answer that's going to give them the truth. And then from that secret, simple answer that's going to give them the truth, they can fix everything in their life. You know, and that's really rarely the case. But what sometimes happens is that people find religion in whatever way they find it. They have some experience and they go, oh, this is the answer for me. You know, maybe they went to AA or maybe they joined the church or maybe they started doing yoga or whatever or got into the Enneagram, you know, something like that. And they go, this is it. This is the answer. And then they try to not only apply that to every element of their life, but then they try to persuade everybody else because, look, I find the answer. This thing's working for me. And that's where we start to get into trouble, particularly when those answers are simplistic. And the answers in Fight Club are relatively simplistic. We got to fight. We're men. We got to fight. We have no morals whatsoever. And everything society has created is bad. Yep. That's a pretty simplistic answer to a complicated question. Well, and, and as, a, as a six, like this is, this is one of the fundamental problems of sixes is, is trying to figure out how to move, to figure out what decisions to make and how to make them. And, 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 and Jack is looking for that identity and looking for something to give him those boundaries. And, and here are very simple answers. And I, I like in this conversation about masculinity, I'd be very curious if, if, if this book and film existed in 2020 instead of 19, instead of the late nineties, I wonder if it would, like, I feel like it could still hit on toxic masculinity, but also have a much broader range to it about, I don't think it would, I don't think it would get made. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me that we feel in our bodies, a lot of anger and fear and shame. 
And in my discipline, what ends up happening is we create, we, we have to ask three questions of what is reality like? Uh, what does it mean to be a good person or what's the right thing to do? And how do I know what I know? And those are, those are the foundations of all knowledge. And when you get a PhD, you're getting a, you know, a philosophy doctorate in your discipline. But philosophy is about those three topics exclusively. Religion answers those questions. Um, and you know, all of us answer those questions. And that is our paradigm. That's our worldview. They, that's... They, they, they try to answer those questions. I don't know if they right. succeed. Well, I, yeah. I, want, I just want to jump on something you said because it was some, you just said something that was what I wanted to say before, which is I would replace what does it mean to be a man with what does it mean to be a good person? Yes. That's a much mm. better question. Masculinity is part of our language. It's a category. It's something that, that is created by human beings you know, all languages like suitcases is you pack a bunch of ideas into a small thing that's easy to unpack, to, you know, to communicate with. And religion is, is a is shorthand for your metaphysical system. And you can't get away from saying this is what I think reality is like. Um, and so, too, ethics comes on top of that. It's what does a good person look like or what's the right thing to do normally is married to or comes out of what we think about reality. Although, uh, just being very familiar with your podcast, Steve, I imagine you and I are going to be in different spots metaphysically, and yet we're probably 99% on the same page ethically. And I bet you we're 99% uh, on the same page epistemologically. It's like, this is what language is, this is how you know things. There's, and, and we're all trying to figure this out, but we use these tools to figure out, it seems to me, they give us power over our world, our anger, our shame, um, our fears, uh, our relationships, they, they allow us to be, they, they are, they're the foundations of what it means for us to be human. And if you, don't, if you lack those uh, answers, what does it look like to be good? What's reality like? You can't do anything. It's like, it's like having no language to speak. This is why I, I think this character, the narrator, is consumed with fear and that's the unhealthy step that they make up front is the answer is going to be found when I figure out what it means to be a man. So, so you have really, you asked me a while ago, why did you want to talk about Tyler Durden? This is why, you yeah, know, it's right? like, we, like I love Hans Gruber and Die Hard, but we wouldn't be having this discussion about Hans <laughs> yeah. Gruber. He's a great villain, so you true. know, great character. You know, if we were talking about Voldemort or something, we wouldn't be having this discussion, although he's a great villain. Long story short, however, <laughs> Too late. How, we come to how we come to reality matters. How we see films matters. You come with glasses. I come with glasses. We view the, 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 the film through the glasses of the value judgments that we have. And, and then one of the great things, I would actually be really curious about this for you as a filmmaker and how this applies to, the, to this movie. Because this is what Enneagram really is for me is Enneagram says there's nine types of motives, and our motives influences what we see in movies. It influences what we see in our relationships. It influences what we see in our friendships and all the rest. Um, you know, so sometimes you might... Uh, so this movie clearly has a Marxist viewing, or it has, a, a, you know, an anti-capitalist viewing. Anti-capitalist. Um, I don't think it's Marxist, but it's anti-capitalist. Right. It's more um, anarchist than Marxist. And for me, what ends up happening is to, uh, to circle back to the foundational issues, you, all of us, because we are human beings, we experience fear, we experience anger, 
we experience shame, what do you do with that when you come to the world that you experience? You tell a story, and that story informs how you see everything else. Well, well I, think, I think that's really astute in terms of the narrator and Tyler Durden. And I think what the danger is, and this is sort of the danger of any religion, is that Tyler Durden makes absolutely correct observations yep. about certain problems. Yep, we're going to talk that, about that for sure. Is that he says, like, these corporate things, these things you're seeking out of, the status stuff, that's all not taking you in the right direction. It's all phony. It's all worthless. And it's all hurting you. I think that's a completely true statement in lots of ways. The things that we own end up owning us. That's, I, I think that is a lot of wisdom. And he the, literally punches through that piece of society with his fist. And then he says, we've been told that all violence is bad. And then they have these violent experiences, and those violent experiences are transformative. And so therefore, he goes, I am right. And then the people that get seduced by him, both the narrator and then all the other people in Fight Club, they take it to the next, what they think is, logical step. And the next logical step. And the yeah. next logical step. And yep. each one of those, they no longer see the fallacies within the, own, the thing that they're constructing. So we've constructed a world based on corporate you know, brands and stuff we got to buy and how we have to look and all that stuff. And that's a lot of BS. But then he constructs another world that's based on no values and violence and this yep. in intense masculinity and no care for other human beings. And that's even more messed up than the thing he was trying to take down in the first place. Let me pitch the airplane conversation because we're just because we're probably going to run out of time. <laughs> I need to jump ahead. But that is is that not what's taking place in the airplane conversation? The narrator is sitting there fantasizing about blowing up an airplane. He has a suitcase that looks exactly like Tyler Durden's and it's filled with something. Um, but Tyler Durden's is filled with soap that sure looks like explosives. And when he gets off the plane, apparently somebody took his suitcase because it was suspect, right? Well, there's only one suitcase. Right? Well, that's right. <laughs> the, what ends up happening with Tyler Durden is he is fantastic at exposing what I would love to call straw men. And this is a, sure. a philosophy term where you, you have something that looks kind of solid. Somebody has pitched it, and then someone else comes in and just knocks it to pieces and shows that it's flimsy. Everything that the narrator fears, I think, is a straw man. Now, it may be the case that they're, they're, they are very intoxicating, seductive. Capitalism obviously has something going for it. But Durden comes in and knocks it to pieces, quite quickly, but he does so in the, in the airplane conversation. Let me actually just, just state it. Cause you'll see exactly what I'm saying. The narrator turns to him. He says, after, after he's been fantasizing about, you know, the plane blowing up. What do you do? What do you mean? What do you do for a living? Why? So you can pretend like you're interested. Narrator doesn't connect with others, and it seems like Tyler exposes it. The narrator giggles. Tyler says, Okay, you have a kind of sick desperation in your life. Because apparently Tyler sees who he is, not just the name tag, and he is authentically exposing him just over and again here. And then Tyler pulls out the briefcase and says, Did you know if you mixed equal parts of gasoline and frozen orange juice concentrate, you can make napalm? 
No, I did not know that. Is that true? That's right. One can make all kinds of explosives using simple household items. Really? If one was so inclined. Tell you are by far the most interesting single-serving friend I've ever met. See, I have this thing, everything on a plane is single-serving, even the... Well, oh, I get it. It's very clever. How's that working out for you? What? Being clever. It's just exposure, exposure, exposure. Great. Keep it up, then. Right up. It's like, how's your mask holding up? Uh, how's your defense method working? There is something here where there is something that's easy to tear down, uh, but nobody else has done it for this narrator yet. Um, first of all, how's that working out for you? Being clever is my favorite line in the movie. It, I it's lo- glorious. That, yeah, I love that line so much. And and I, as a person who, I say to myself all the time, all <laughs> the time, because I'll come up with some clever idea and like, oh, I'm so smart. And then the next thought that comes in my head, how's that working out for you, being clever? And 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 I think clever is such a smart word. I think we spend a lot of time just on clever. Clever is such a smart word because it's different from smart. It's different yeah. from wise. Um you know, it, clever is a trick. Clever is an idea that allows you to twist a thing. And it's also a thing that you kind of pat yourself on the back for. I was pretty clever in the way I did that thing. But clever is not substantial. And I think that's the hole that he's punching is that, and, and this is one of the thing, again, this is why Fight Club is so persuasive, is how many people go through their lives having thousands of interactions that are all insubstantial. You know, you talk to someone about the weather, you make small talk with someone else, and you never have deep, profound connection with someone. And deep, profound connection with people is one of the most important things to a happy life and a fulfilled life. And the narrator is anything but happy and fulfilled. And so he goes, small talk, what do you do for a living? Tyler doesn't give him small talk. Tyler says, says look at these uh, people, and he pulls out the safety thing. Emergency water landing, 600 miles an hour. Blank faces, calm as Hindu cows. You know, that, that, and he talks about, and he, again, he deconstructs what's happening in the airplane. Is you think that you are, that this is instructions on safety. But no, this safety thing is to keep you in control. Keeping someone in control plays into everything that society is doing to you. It is making you a sheep that is walking around doing what society tells you to do, and all of that is not fulfilling. And then if you succeed in doing what society told you you were supposed to do by getting all the things that you were supposed to have, well, how's that working out for you, being clever? Yeah. How's it working out for you, buying IKEA stuff? Go ahead, TJ. And even the the thing that he is getting the term clever for like the, the thing that earns him the title clever is by coming up with this concept of single serving friends, Mm -hmm. which he then starts to explain. And the, the, and Tyler's like, no, I get it. You're clever. Like it's the, this, I like the single serving friends, like that concept in and of itself is completely useless. Yep. Like you came up with a, uh, an interesting way to say something totally pointless. Like th- this, this hollowness doesn't matter. How's that? How's that working out for you? Well, and we have to continue to remind ourselves that there's only one dude here. 
Right. There's only one guy. There's no conversation happening. It wasn't that one guy had a dream about blowing up an airplane and the other guy knows how to make bombs. He already knows how to make bombs. Right. He looked it up. He researched it. Whatever's in that briefcase, there's only one briefcase. And whatever is vibrating when it gets taken by the security people, that was his briefcase. And what is happening at the very moment that we're having this conversation about a bomb in a briefcase and a bomb on a plane and blowing up a plane and how do you make a bomb? His apartment is blowing up because yep. he already made a bomb. Right. Yep. Or is it not the case that he had plans both to blow up the airplane and to blow up his apartment? He pulled one know. of those. I don't know. There was a there was a local shooting near us that, in which the the gentleman walked into a movie theater, shot it all up. You've, I'm sure you've heard the Dark yeah. Knight stuff. That he did the same with his apartment. That's what went through my mind is that the self destruction is just spilling out of this character in these in these ways as he's asking these existential questions, but he can't get to correct answers. Good. Do you remember what Tyler Durden says about self destruction? Self destruction is masturbation. That was self improvement. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was self-improvement. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Self-improvement is masturbation. You're right. I, which, But that actually brings up the point is Tyler Durden is seeking to... I think that's, that is the villainous line for me because self-improvement is not masturbation. Self-improvement no. is one of the great things that you were put on earth to actually achieve. There is something about this character that is I want to deconstruct to the point where everything is eliminated. Yes. Um, there is a turn after the apartment is blown up in which he has a chance, the narrator has a chance to call Marla, who answers, mm -hmm. and then he hangs up and then he calls Tyler. What's going on in that scene? Just in that interaction. I'm not going to listen to Marla. I'm not going to communicate with Marla. This is not the one whom I want to get answers from. I'm going to call Tyler. Well, again, there is no Tyler. He didn't make a call. Right. There's no one to talk to is that. And, and again, we have to go like, what is uh, who is Marla to him? And what's really interesting, I think, about the character of Marla is that she is both the worst possible version of him in some way, because she's closer to Tyler in terms of, you know, being a sociopath mm -hmm. like she, you know, she she her going in when he goes into the support groups, he's going to pretend to be part of that support. She's walking in smoking a cigarette to the cancer group. You know, she goes into testicular cancer. She doesn't care that she's hurting other people. He does. So in one sense, she's more Tyler-like. But in the other sense, there is some sort of connection between the two. And I think if he went with her, there might be some hope. That's human connection with another person. Mm -hmm. Instead, he tries to have, goes to have connection with this other version of himself, you know. So I think it's a rejection of society. That's what I think it is. Or a rejection of health. What do you think, Teach? My thought on this plays into my bigger theory that this is actually a, a fairly straightforward love story and that Marla is the thing that, um, like, when he meets Marla, that's the point where he has a break because Jack finally has something worth living for. <laughs> like, he, he has something that... He, he needs to propel himself out of the life that he's living and he can't do that on his own because he doesn't trust himself. And so like the, the, the experience with Marla is him trying to like, he immediately falls in love with her and he wants that that's guy meets girl. Uh, so when he calls her, like I, I totally agree that 
that moment he he he's not ready for the connection that he would have with Marla at that point. I I think that if he if he did say something and say I need a place to stay to her and like we wouldn't have had this story because he's he's not I I think it would have given him hope and I don't think he's ready for it. Yeah, that's what I think too. Yeah. I'm going to go back to I think that the Durden is is a personification of his self-criticism that just goes off on steroids. It's I'm going to destroy myself and it just begins to spill that after he blows up his apartment, he begins that eye of looking at the apartment turns inward and now he's looking at himself and and how can I destroy more and more and more and more? And he begins in the in the at the bar. He starts nitpicking all the things. You know, the there's it's again the case. It begins with that conversation about a man having his penis chopped off, which is very common in this movie. Um, anxiety about his wardrobe being set on fire, which clearly doesn't matter. They start talking about duvets and Martha Stewart and guy's name on your underwear, and all of these things are exposed as slaveholders. The capitalistic system. Um, or the advertising or, you know, whatever this culture has, it is selling you something that owns you and things you and own. Feminizing. And feminizing. It's, 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 yes. it's, it's both corporate and owning you and anti-masculine. That is the critique. The, yeah. I'm going to critique it because I'm going to say it's not masculine. Isn't, isn't that how that would work? It's let me show you that you are being ruled by women. And, and what's the line in the bathroom about... Do we really need another woman? I, I, I don't think another uh, female is the answer for us. That's like, no, no, no. They're talking about, fa- I, th- I don't think another father figure is an answer for us. Isn't that what he says? No, I don't remember. We're a generation of men raised by women. I'm wondering if another woman is really uh, the answer right, we right. need. But both of them, the father figure and the woman, are pitched in that bathroom scene for sure. But what well, he well, does, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is, the other thing is, is that if I'm going to make an argument to you, and I want you to make a different political choice. If I can connect that political choice or life choice to your particular insecurity, then I'm going to do a lot better job convincing you to do what is that his feelings about his own masculinity is his weak spot. So saying the duvet cover and all these things are connected to your lack of masculinity, that's what makes it so persuasive, you know? In yeah. particular, because if you frame things as I'm a man, therefore masculine is good and feminine is bad, well, then that falls right into your own set of insecurities, you know? Right. Again, circles back to I think he's consumed by a question that doesn't matter. And there's this, just to come back to Enneagram stuff, isn't that a sixth thing? It's, it's, it's unproductive thinking. He is terrified and his fears are coming out in, way, in ways that are just worthless and not even worth talking about. TJ has a metaphor. Uh, we, I don't think we've ever talked about lion or tigers in the other room. Can you talk about tigers in the other room? So there's this uh, sort of an old proverb that fear is walking into a room and finding a tiger. Courage is deciding to do something about that tiger. Uh, Anxiety is standing outside the room wondering if there's a tiger inside of it. And this is the place where sixes live. It's, it's the, the fear of, it's not just fear of the unknown, but fear that things are going to go badly. It's not just worrying that like anything could be on the other side of the door. It's worrying specifically that something terrible is on the other side of that door. And sort of living in that place 
means that you kind of get stunted. You you can't you can't act, you can't move because you're always fearful of what if there's a tiger? But what if there's a tiger? And it's like, well, open the door and find out first and then deal with it. But sixes live in that place of not of, of worrying about what might be. I, I love that metaphor. I think it's a great one. So so our narrator is worried about the tiger in the other room. Yep. Tyler Durden is charging into the other room to defeat tigers. But what he ends up doing is, yeah, he might knock out a tiger, but there's also like a cute bunny in there and some other animals that he also is using the same technique on and wiping out all other stuff and thinking that he's brave. I I actually think, let me back up in the metaphor. I think Tyler is outside the door weaponizing the fear of what's in the other room. Yeah, sure. And what's in the other room is you're not a man. Let me tell you how you're a copy of a copy of a copy. Tell me about your dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what's going on. It's all about you are not man enough. And he's asking this irrelevant question, but that's the thing. It's, a rev- it's an irrelevant question, and it has power over him. And how many people in our culture and, and how many of us listening, how many of us talking have, <laughs> have something in their life that has absolutely consuming power because they have given it that power. Of course. And they just can't escape. And I think that's who the narrator is. But by, by the way, I want to point out one fallacy that always bothers me because we've been uh, elevating masculinity since the beginning of humans. You know, like the men, the men yeah. lead the tribe. You know, go be manly and, and tests of manhood and how do you be a man? And pretty much if you list all the terrible things that have happened in the history of the world, it's all dudes. Yep. You know, yep. so like the idea that men have some monopoly on goodness and that femininity must therefore, since it's the opposite, which it's not, must be weaker or less important or less skilled is like, well, every piece of evidence in history tells us that that is not true. And the cognitive dissonance that we're using to hold on to the, you know, the ideal of masculinity is something to aspire to is just completely ridiculous. Is, could we talk about that in the last scene? Is there something about the last scene in terms of perhaps integration looks like grabbing hold of her hand and that's why everything is about Marla Singer, the guns, the bombs, the revolution. Well, f- for me, so, so by the way, my best bet on what's happened at the end of the movie is also integration. I think that's my best bet. It could be, some people say, oh, now it's just the true narrator. That's really, mm-hmm. he's, 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 he um, killed Tyler. He killed t- the Tyler part of him. I think that is the least likely. Yeah. Uh, there's also the possibility that he's Tyler. The big thing to me is that he, while looking at the world being destroyed, and our understanding is that he's actually destroying like the entire financial universe, like these ruining civilization, the narrator says, everything's going to be okay now. Mm -hmm. That to me does not make him a good guy at the end. This Mm. is because the narrator was, what was he doing? He was desperately trying to stop this horrible thing from happening. And now the horrible thing has happened and he's fine with it. That's very uncomfortable. Is that, could it be the case that the phrase everything's going to be fine is, isn't about the world out there. It's about his inner hundred percent. Totally could be. Totally could be. But, and I think that's the, I think that's the interpretation that we, you would most likely have. It's just, you know, me and looking at the movie more and more. I'm like, wait a minute. 
what has just happened? And we don't know. And the other thing, you remember what the last image of the movie is? The building's coming down, yeah? No, it is not. The, so there is a thing that gets brought up, this filmmaking stuff, where there are these uh, intercut images, like Tyler Durden pops up randomly when we talk about copies of a copy. And there's this other thing that Tyler Durden liked to do when he was working as a projectionist, which is to cut into family films the image of a penis. Right. It is a penis that is the last image of the movie. Oh, sure it Flash is. of a wiener. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so and so does that make you go that Tyler Durden is gone? <laughs> to me, it's the opposite. You know, this is like, no. <laughs> there it is. Tyler Durden is back there in the projection booth, and he wants yeah. you to believe this story. Go start a fight club. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, why the got, movie's really sub- subversive for that reason. Yeah. I got a, I got a theory I want to pitch Steve. Uh, this is something that TJ and I, when we do live events, this is one of the themes that we hit, that there are so many movie stories about the knight who is fighting the dragon in order to save the girl. Yes. It seems to me that if you were to take your eyes and point them entirely at your insides, the dragon is, is not out there. It is something within you. And that comes out in this film. Tyler Durden is a dragon. And he's dressed in red. He's got he's got some. Uh, I, I want to say he has uh, reptilian. Uh, oh yeah, wear. he's wearing like uh, leather and weird alligator skin stuff. Totally, an animal. He's wearing fur. Yeah. And I know you mentioned this at the beginning, and, and it was a tease that there might not be the narrator might not be two people. The narrator might be three people. And I assume that you think that the third person might be Marla. No, that thought never occurred to me. What? Never at all. Nope, never thought of that. Nope. I think it's the case that there is something about the knight who uh, the, there is a beauty to rescue and there's a dragon mm, to fight sure. and both of them are inside of you. There is something about your best self, your, the flourishing you that is beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous, and worthy of fighting the dragon for. And you are the knight and you are the dragon. And you are the beauty to rescue. And that these tales that we love about that story somehow come together here in these, in these three characters. I think the narrator is eventually fighting Durden. Oh, I definitely think that. So here's what I think about your theory. Yeah. I can't think of any evidence that your theory is true. But <laughs> I really like it. And here's why I like it. Is I like it because this has been an entire film about masculinity uh-huh. and the problems with masculinity and the seduction of masculinity and you have to become your most masculine version of yourself and the journey is to become truly masculine through violence. And if we go with your theory, the end of the film is the discovery of femininity. Yeah. That the unification yep. of this character comes through not the masculine side but the female side. I think that's really brilliant. I can't think of it, of why I could prove that it was true, but I still like it a lot. Um, the, the other thing I would say is that everything you're saying about the dragon, I mean, that's all Joseph Campbell stuff, yep. is that the, the hero's journey is all, always a journey of self-discovery. You know, it's always a journey where you go through this thing to come back on the other side, the person that you're supposed to be. And of course, naturally, the biggest demons we have to fight are the ones we find within ourselves. So I think that's completely 100% what's going on. TJ, what is the dragon sixes need to fight? Uh, it's their own fear. It's their their doubt about themselves. It's their inability to engage the world in a way that 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 showcases that they are capable and that they trust that they can do it. 
this is the bathroom scene in small measure. Durden is the one who asked. If you could fight anyone, who would you fight? Fight my boss, probably. Really? Yeah, why? Who would you fight? Fight my dad. I don't know my dad. I mean, I know him, but he left when I was like six years old, married this other woman, had some other kids. He, like, did this every six years. He goes to a new city and starts a new family. Fuck, you're setting up franchises. My dad never went to college, so it's real important that I go. That sounds familiar. So I graduate. I call him up long distance. I said, Dad, now what? He says, get a job. Same here. Now I'm 25. Make my yearly call again. Say, Dad, now what? He says, I don't know. Get married. I mean... You can't get married. I'm a 30-year-old boy. We're a generation of men raised by women. I'm wondering if another woman is really the answer we need. There is something here about... It's, again, a straw man, where Durden is, in my mind, picturing this is what you have been sold as masculine, one. It's the copy of a copy of a copy. It's pushing... But it's really pushing into his fear, you are going to be just like your father. And that's, a, that's something that a lot of men struggle with. It, and there is something that he feels the fear. And just like dragons do, Smog is this character. They are, they are navigating the conversation in a way where they are seeking leverage and I was, I was hoping that you guys could comment on this. So scene. I have several comments. First was a great scene. And there's a beautiful right. bit of writing in there that I think is really important to point out, which is that Tyler says that I'm calling my father. And he says, what do I do? What do I do? You know, go to college, get a job, get married. And then he, dad says to get married. And then the narrator says in response to Tyler's father, I can't get married. I'm a 30 year old child because it's the same father. That's yep. one of the great clues that this is the same person. Right. Yep. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is you said that we're afraid of becoming our father, which I think is true. But part of what this scene is, it's not just that he's afraid of becoming his father. He's not grown up even to be his father, who was a terrible father. Yes. I'm still a child. I can't even be what the terrible father was. I don't even know how to do that. And so he's measuring. What's so funny is that he looks at his terrible father and doesn't measure up to that level of manliness. You know, I'm still and, a kid. And even further, he's still looking for someone else to tell him what to do. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Like, all this whole thing is, is he is calling his father to say, now what? Tell me what to do with my life. His yeah. asshole father. This is one of the few places in the movie that I think the narrator tells you who he is, and he says, I'm a 30-year-old boy. I don't, I don't know that there's a lot of other identity language, and it's, again, a list of straw men. Is life found in going to college? Is life find in, found in vocation? Is life found in romance? Is meaning, you know, becoming like your father? All of these are articulations of answers that aren't sufficient for, for this character. I agree. And, and I think um, the, the, the word that I think relates a lot to this that's in the film is completion, is mm. I'll be complete. 
If mm -hmm. I have all these things, I have that couch, I have this thing, then I will be complete. And we, you know, and then if I have the job and if I have the college degree and if I have the wife and I'm a father, then I will be complete. If I am a man, I will be complete. And I think, you know, again, the fallacy here is we're never complete. We never feel complete. And, and what, what I always feel, and this come up so many times as we talked on the podcast, is that we look at other humans and we, they look really solid. Like they, they, they have it figured out, you know, and we see all of our insecurities and all the holes and all the things that are missing. And we're living with them every single day. And we look at these other people and go, well, how do I be like them? Not realizing that they just feel as messed up as we do, you know, and that's the thing is that I'm still a boy. Well, we, oh, I'm 52. I'm, st I still feel like a boy a lot of the times. And even when I'm teaching and I have to remind myself that these are 18 year old kids I'm teaching and I look really old. I bald. I have lots of gray in my beard, you know, like, like I'm an old guy and yet I still feel like a kid and you always will. You're never going to be complete. You might have, I mean, I'm sure you guys have both had moments where it's like, Oh, I'm having a perfect moment. I feel I'm like connecting with someone in some way and this is magical but those things are fleeting. Right. Most of the time, we're incomplete. TJ, would you talk about how sixes see the world in that way, where in terms of comparison, and everybody else has it together? So we all have, each of us, all of us, have some type of voice in our head that, that sort of helps narrate our life for us and, uh, and, and sort of points out the places that we're failing and... and all of those things, and and ones, twos, and sixes feel this in particular, uh, and this has to do with that that thinking repression. They they just they don't think productively, and uh, we we talk about this in the Enneagram world. We talk about this most with ones. Uh, we we talk about the inner critic, and and it's it's this voice that's that's behind. Everything that ones do, everything, every decision that they make, every conversation they have, every every act they do, there's this voice that says, "You could have done that better," um, and this this is part of their drive to make the world better. Is is that you can continually be do like everything that happens, you could have done it better, and and sixes have that as well, and so like one twos and sixes can often be mistyped as ones because we talk so much about the inner critic. But the, but the way that sixes hear it is very much in that sort of like it, it's a bit more in that comparison vein. Um, so so my 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 partner and I we talk about this a lot is is the this concept of like viewing the world through what other people expect her to do. Like like her opinion of herself is so much wrapped up in what she thinks other people are like. And so she sees uh, other artists and says, I'm supposed to be more like that. She sees other teachers and says, I'm supposed to be more like that. She sees other mothers and says, I'm supposed to be more like that. And, and just, just in general, her, her world, her, her worldview is wrapped up in what she thinks that other people are like, because this is the route to safety, security, healthy completeness. But as we said, it's, it's, this isn't how other people see themselves necessarily. So sixes are applying this filter that is entirely based on the perception of other people and their successes and, and, and building up this image of here's what a healthy, safe, 
safe, secure person looks like, and here's how they think, except that you're not in their head. So sixes are, are stuck in this place of thinking, I'm supposed to be like that, except that that's not how those people are. So if you guys, my guess is at some point, one or both of you have read Ayn Rand. <laughs> um, Get, you'll, you'll have to ask TJ what his coffee shop is called. What's your coffee shop called? John Galt Coffee. Wow. I'm, I'm a fan, but I know that she's crazy. You, uh, you, you and I might totally agree. I love those books. I've read them many times. And, and part of what I'm doing when I read them is having long arguments with her because she's a yep. horrible person. Yep. And what I think about Ayn Rand is I think she's like Tyler Durden. Hmm. Is I think exactly. she makes right. incredible observations about humans and comes to all the wrong conclusions. Yeah. Yes. Is that and so one of her observations is since you obviously know Ayn Rand, I could just go right to Peter Keating. Peter yep. Keating is the person who all he cares about is what other people think, right. and he's a miserable, sad person. Yep. And that is a hundred percent right. Yeah. What's wrong <laughs> is what her ideals are and what she thinks people should do to solve the problem. Like Tyler Durden, she's like, "We'll blow up the system. Have no compassion." Right. You know, it's like no wrong solution, good observation. Yep. yep. It's a straw man. Yeah. By the way, if you're a, 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 an entrepreneur, the last thing you would want to do is start a coffee shop. It's a good <laughs> sure. joke in that. Yeah. I thought you were going to say the last thing you want to do is act like Howard Rourke, <laughs> which is also the last also thing you should do. True. Yeah. You yeah. won't be in work for very long. He's a, he's a horrible person, too. Yeah. And Dominique is an awful, awful, terrible, terrible person. Seriously. But I still like the book. That book she, changed my life. <laughs> it did for and me, too. They're terrible people. Yeah. I mean, like... But I love, I mean, I literally, we could have a whole Ayn Rand conversation. I know uh, Atlas Shrug and Fountainhead pretty much backwards and forwards. So we can talk about Oren Boyle and we could talk about uh, Hank Reardon all you want. I feel uh, like I've be been fun. looking for you for years. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's really important for self-development is to deal with the bad answers. And that's the, maybe if you were to put a just a what's the large idea of Fight Club at its best is it's going to expose a lot of the bad answers. One of the bad answers is given by Tyler Durden. But that's growth. That is human discovery. And what ends up happening in the intro of this movie, what happens in the bathroom scene, and what happens elsewhere is going to be, let me expose all of the bad answers. Tyler, if, if you spin Tyler well, might be a great... Um, he's kind of the opposite of the, what, the Virgil character. Uh, we're going to take you through hell for a minute and show you how terrible things could be. And the deconstruction is necessary for a lot of us. We need to tear down a lot of the crap that our culture gives us, our parents give us, um, our religion gives us, uh, uh, our educators have given us. And on, But you can't live there. You can't live in deconstruction. Eventually, you got to build a house to live in. Well, and, well, well I think that, I think that w what you say is exactly right, is that it is about bad answers, but Tyler Durden is also about good questions. Yes. Is that mm. the things that he's questioning, he's totally right on. It, you know, it's the answers that are wrong. Yes. You know, and, and, and I think a thing to bring up, because you brought up straw man so many times, is, is, is what we really want is steel man arguments. It's steel man arguments are the opposite of straw man, which is because a straw man is like, I'm going to tell your position in the weakest way and then destroy it. Steel yep. man argument is I'm going to give the best possible version of your argument and then destroy it. Dear God, 
could that be where our culture goes? Everything in popular now. media is straw men. We need to dialogue. This is where health is found. This is where intellectual health is found is I want to test everything and see if it's sound. And I want the, give me your best presentations of the things that you hold most core. And we can't do that because unfortunately we're demonizing the other side and that's just all, it's pathetic ad hominem. Well, and the fact is, is that fabric woven by that indigenous people from wherever might be really nice. And those people might have worked really hard on it. Yes, it won't fulfill your life, but there's nothing wrong with that piece <laughs> of fabric or that couch or that thing. And this is the thing is that you're asking the wrong question. Is like, yeah, if you're seeking after these things to make your life complete and it's not making your life complete, then don't seek after those things. Right. But if you bought that fabric and every time you snuggle up on that, under that blanket or whatever and you makes you happy, well, then that was a great thing to buy, right. you know? I wanted to bring this up. When I start my intro classes, my first lecture just goes something like this. It just starts out with questions. Why is the person sitting next to you in this class? What would you say? And it's likely the answer is going to be, well, they need to get a good grade because they need to get their degree. The degree is really important. That's why a lot of people come to college. Why are you getting the degree? Of course, the degree in our culture is really important to get the job. So I'm getting the grade to get the degree, to get the job. And the job is going to give me all the money that I need, but money is useless. You're on a uh, desert island. Money won't do anything for you. Money is there to get you the stuff, and that's where this movie starts out. It starts with all the stuff that he's able to purchase, but why do you want the stuff? And eventually, it seems to me we get to that spot where we say, well, I think the stuff is going to make me happy, and then I say, well, what is happiness? And the rest of the, co- the, rest of the class is just that question. Because most of us don't have a good answer there. Even here, I'm watching this movie. I'm a trained philosopher. And who are you? What is the meaning of life? What is it that's going to make you happy? Are still really, they're not only important questions. They're not necessarily questions that I have a really solid steel man position on. And I long to get there. It's one of the reasons I love philosophy. And... I'm so thrilled that you were able to come and be uh, with us and talk through this, this, this movie because the movie awakens us to needing to have good answers or else everything's just going to explode. I, I think that's why it's such a great movie. Thank, thank, thank you for having me on. It's been a, a fantastic conversation, exactly the kind of conversation I really like. But the, what's good about this movie, if you watch it in the right way, is it challenges your perceptions and forces you to ask questions. While at the same time, and I think this is important to point out, depending on your sense of humor, this movie is really funny. It's really fun. It's dark as hell. But it's like if you and and stylistically, it is off the charts interesting to watch. It is fast paced. The acting is great. And so if you can have all that cool stuff and ask profound questions about the meaning of life, well, then you got me as an audience member. You know, I'm in. That's what stuff I like. Uh, you got a last word, TJ, before we sign off with Steve? I'm just thinking about Ayn Rand now and uh, how much, <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's, it's the same thing for me, for me it, that like, I, I like her writing so much. I like, I enjoy reading, I, We the Living is not good, but, uh, the other ones, I really like those books. I read I really, We the Living once. It yeah, ended, that was that's, it. That was plenty. I, I, I read those books over and over again. I really like them, and I take something new from them every time I read them. And, and yet, 
if I were to build a philosophy for my life off of these writings, I would become a terrible person. I really enjoy Fight Club. I think it's a well-crafted movie with great, spectacular actors. I forgot this is the movie that made me fall in love with Helena Bonham Carter. It It's so well done in so many ways. And if I build a philosophy for my life based off of this movie, I'm going to become a bad person. But it might ask me some good questions about what I'm doing. Well, I let the, it. What the, I'd say that what the difference, by the way, is that Ayn Rand wants you to build the philosophy that's put out in the book. Mm, yeah. David Fincher doesn't want you to be right. like Tyler yeah. Durden at all. <laughs> right. Um, and, and what I would say, the other thing I would say, and it just relates to Ayn Rand, but it relates to this, is we always associate ourselves in a work of fiction with the cool people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sometimes, sometimes we relate to Peter Keating or something and we go like, oh, I feel like that sometimes. But mm-hmm. we aspire to be Howard Work and John Raw, you know, and Hank Reardon and, and all those people, Dagny Taggart. But right. really, you know, and it's like, and so you hear all these businessmen today saying, oh, I like Ayn Rand because they're thinking they're Hank Reardon, but right, they're yeah. not. They're Jim they're Taggart. Not. Right. Yep. You yep. know, they're exactly. Oren Boyle. Yep. They're the people, you know, who are taking advantage of the system to be super wealthy. They're not the genius builder who's doing all those things. Right. We're, you know, and it's like examining, you know, uh, Tyler Durden. He is seductive as hell, but he's a bad person. Yep. He, he is, I think, a villain. Yep. Agreed. He, he a dragon. Yeah. Um, I would say, by the way, if you want to see more of my work, you could look at The Assistance, which is the movie I made with Jane Seymour, Joe Montaigne, and Stacey Keach. It's on iTunes. Yeah. And uh, Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear is my shark documentary that's on Amazon Prime. It's free. Um, so check those out if you want to see more of my work. Um, but I think really my best work at this point is just talking a lot of stuff. And that's what this has been. Is it's been a lot of fun. Boom. Excellent. Much love to you and to your family. And, Thank you. Uh, and you uh, cheering for you during, uh, during, uh, during this time of, of, of where we're homeschooling. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> and good luck with the John Galt. Uh, the John Galt line of Thanks. coffee. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I'll talk to you guys later. Well, as we said, the link to helping us and helping Steve's work with childhood cancer is going to be linked in our show notes. And it would mean the world to us if we would just, if a handful of us would pitch in, it can be five bucks to helping the most vulnerable kids in our country and around the world navigate horrendous life experiences and get them on the other side it would also mean the world to us if you pause take two seconds and write us a brief review give us some stars on your podcasting platform of choice you can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org but the best thing you can do is share the episode with someone that you love preferably someone who might become a terrorist but needs to get talked off the ledge And so here's a healthy conversation about where they're at and how they can wrestle with their their dragons. You got anything else, TJ? I got nothing. It's been a blast. Come on. He's TJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. We are super grateful for the great Steve Morris. And I'm Jeff Cook. And who you aren't isn't interesting. Peace.